house of prayer. Friends, let us worship the living God. The first scripture reading is Call to Worship. Check. Please rise in body or spirit for the call to worship. Come to offer praise. We come not because we always feel God's presence, but because we pray. Come to remember. Come to make an offering.
You may be seated. I want to welcome you here to worship at Westminster. It is truly a joy to be here together this morning. I invite you after worship out to our patio area. Coffee, tea, and snacks will be there, and especially a chance to get to know each other just a little better. I invite you now to join me in the community prayer printed in your bulletin. Let us pray. Holy God, our hearts yearn to encounter you. Forgive us for our forgetfulness as we seek to meet our needs through endless accumulation, the abuse of power, and the feeding of selfish ambition. Call us back to you in grace when we slink away from your love, deeming ourselves unworthy or irredeemable. Encourage us to approach you in boldness and hope, trusting we can ever become more the people you call us to be. Our prayers continue in quiet. Amen. Friends, know that true comfort does come not from accumulation or ambition, but from God's love for us. And by responding with that same love to family and friends, neighbor and stranger. And by this love of God, we are forgiven. We are set free to do likewise. Thanks be to God. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite any of the children worshiping with us to come join me here at the front. All right, I have a couple of friends to introduce you to today. I'm wondering if some of you may even know who these guys are. Anyone? know who these guys are? It's right on the tip of Elsa's tongue. Nobody recognizes these guys? Okay, it is is a pig and an elephant. What? They're in a book. Yes, they are. Have you read their book? They're actually in lots of books. So this, this is Gerald. Yeah, the elephant Gerald. And this is Piggy. Really, really creative name there, Piggy. So So Gerald and Piggy are actually in lots of books, and these books were a favorite in our house for many, many years. So much a favorite that Gerald and Piggy had to come live with us. Um, So I'm going to set them right there, and I want to share one of their books with you today. This one is called Waiting is Not Easy. Um, So I want to share just a little bit of it with you. So Piggy comes cartwheeling in saying, Gerald, I have a surprise for you. And Gerald says, yay, what is it? Well, the surprise is a surprise. Oh. Is it big? Yes. Is it pretty? Yes. Can we share it? Yes. I cannot wait. And then Piggy says, you will have to. Wait, what, why? The surprise is not here yet. 
So I will have to wait for it? Yes. Groan. Apparently Gerald's not too good at waiting. Oh, well, if I have to wait, I will wait. I am waiting. Uh Uh-oh, I don't want to miss the page. It might be good. Waiting is not easy. Piggy, I want to see your surprise now. I'm sorry, Gerald, but we must wait. Groan. I don't know if you can see his groans are actually smushing Piggy over here in the corner. I am done waiting. I do not think your surprise is worth waiting for at all. I will not wait anymore. Okay, I will wait some more. It'll be worth the wait. Groan. Piggy, we have waited too long. It's getting dark. It's getting darker. Soon we will not be able to see each other. We will not be able to see anything. We have wasted the whole day. Well, um, we have waited and waited and waited and waited and for what? Gerald's getting a little impatient for that. And look at what they waited for. The beautiful starry night sky. Isn't that beautiful? Gerald says, this was worth the wait. And Piggy says, I know. Look at that. How beautiful. But Gerald had to wait. And so I was thinking of this book as I was thinking about the story you all are going to hear in Sunday school today. Because Moses goes to Pharaoh who is keeping the Israelites as slaves. They don't want to be there, but Pharaoh is making them stay. And Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. So they have to wait. And Moses comes to him again and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so they have to wait some more. And the story that you're going to hear today is about how God was with them as they waited. They wanted to leave. Pharaoh wouldn't let them. And it was a really hard situation. But God was with them. And God let them know in lots of different ways how God was with them as they waited and waited. Waiting's not easy. But in those times in our lives when we have to wait, know that we do not wait alone. God waits with us. And maybe like Gerald and Piggy, maybe you have a good friend waiting with you too. All right, so you're going to head off to Sunday school. If you're in second grade or younger, Marilyn's right there to take you to the preschool building. If you're in third, fourth, or fifth grade, Connie's headed that way. She's going to meet you back there and take you to where you need to be, all right? Go now in peace. Go now in peace. May So as we move into our time of joys and concerns, this is a time for you to share with us the joys and concerns that are on your heart and mind today. I will um, offer one to begin, and that is certainly our prayers are with the family and friends of Jim Hampton. Jim died this past week after some time on hospice care. He was a long-term member of this congregation. He sang in the choir for many years. He was an important member of our Men's Connection group on Fridays. Um, So the family believes his service likely won't be for another couple months, um, but we will certainly let you know when that service is planned for Jim. Are there other joys or concerns that you have to share? Yeah, Nancy. Continued prayers for the children who are still separated from their parents. Absolutely. Others? Sherry. Sure. Um, great joy that we have my mom with us this 
<laughs> we have uh, Sherry's mom visiting with us. They had a wedding and two different birthdays celebrated in their family. So congratulations. Sharon, you said you had one. Yeah. Yes. Um, Kathleen Bandus and my daughter had a really bad accident a week ago Friday at um, uh, Blackie's where a pack of dogs were running and she and her friends were running and they came at them. The, all the dogs came at them. One really big dog hit Catherine really hard, sent her up into the air. Her friends say she was horizontal, came down flat on her left elbow, dislocated it. The emergency room was able to put the bones back together, but there were uh, lots of complications. And so finally she went to an orthopedist who operated on her on Wednesday and she has um, a titanium rod and screws and he was able to put the bones all back together so she's not a bionic <laughs> and um, was repair was able to repair the ligand, ligament Ligand? damage so she's been in terrible pain I, I to, to be a mother and watch your grown daughter in that much pain was just horrific um, she said it was worse than childbirth it's like putting a knife in the elbow and just twisting it all the time, and um, but this morning she woke up in fairly good mood. She is healing. Uh, she's still on lots of uh, pain medications, but please, lots of prayers. She was blessed because it was her left elbow. <laughs> so uh, Sharon offers prayers for her daughter, also a Westminster member, Catherine Van Dusen, who dislocated her elbow, had surgery last Wednesday, has been in a lot of pain, but prayers for her healing. Let's take a few moments in quiet, and then I'll lead us in the Lord's Prayer. So let us be in prayer together. Gracious God, you hear our prayers, both those spoken aloud, those kept in the silence of our hearts. We offer those prayers not only for the people in our life, but also the places. Consider especially those people in places recovering from the hurricane. Gracious God, we simply give you thanks for the ways that you support us both in our joy and our sorrow. And hear us now as together we pray the prayer your Son taught us, saying, Our
The first scripture reading is Mark 10, 17 through 31. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. As he was setting out on a journey, a man came up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your mother and father. And he said to him, Teacher, teacher, I have kept all of those since my youth. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked, and he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, Oh, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. So Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to climb through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals, it's impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began, Look, we have left everything and followed you. But Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake or for the sake of the kingdom, who will not receive hundredfold now in this age houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before the second reading, a special word of grace and peace to those who listen at home afterwards on the website or on the podcast or those who may be watching us now. May God's peace and presence surround you wherever you are. The second reading today comes from the book of Hebrews. The fourth chapter, verses 12 to 16, listen for what the Spirit is continuing to say to us this morning. Indeed, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before God, no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. 
since then. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, this is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. I was at a wedding last week in the city. It was a glorious occasion, an evening wedding, and so I took our young son home to the hotel to be with a sitter and then returned to the reception. And while I was out front waiting for a car, a man approached on the sidewalk. Now, judging by his appearances, I'm going to guess that he made the streets his home. And he did something unsettling when he got near me. He stepped off the sidewalk and made a wide loop around me on the street which indicated to me that somewhere along the way he'd gotten the message that people like me don't want people like him near. Whether it was my suit or the color of my skin or the part of town we're in, I don't know, but he had learned that. And when he got past me, he came back up on the sidewalk and he walked over to the door of the hotel where there was a bowl that had been set out for dog walkers. And he knelt down and one at a time dipped his hands in and washed and cooled them before walking on. What a distance there was between us at that moment. Jesus talks about this kind of distance that exists in society all the time. You see a version of that in today's story, in that episode, where this this lawyer, this uh, expert in religious law, comes before him, the commentators say disingenuously, clearly looking to prove that nothing lacks in his religious observance. And Jesus says, almost, you lack just one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It's a difficult teaching. Just like that moment was a difficult moment crashing right into my wedding experience. Not ruining it, we learn how to navigate these moments. The rich man who questioned Jesus had trouble navigating that moment. He sort of backpedaled, and Jesus doesn't make it any easier after they have this back and forth where Jesus says, once you do all that, well then, then you can enter the kingdom of God, then you can follow me. And then Jesus offers a tougher teaching still, and he says, it will be easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for the rich one to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, you'll hear all kinds of interpretations of that passage. Some will say, well, the the eye of the needle was the name for a gate uh, in the way to the city, and and the camel just has to kneel to go through it. Ever heard that one? Or or somebody told me after the first service that it was a style of knot, and so it was just tough to get through the new. I bet you could kind of get it through. I don't know if any of those are true, but I would be very suspicious of anyone who tries to make that story too easy. They're likely having feelings about their own position 
in the world. So I'm not going to soften that passage for you. I will say I think it's probably about more than we might assume at first. And it's not, I would say, about Jesus hating rich people. I think it's about Jesus inviting us into a new way of being. We often hear those words and categorize them as if they're words of condemnation, words of damnation. I actually think they're mere words of description. I think Jesus is simply telling us like it is. He's describing what the kingdom of God is like. He's not talking about the afterlife. He's talking about God's way of being right here, right now. And he's juxtaposing that with the dominant norms of society. And he's saying there is something about having that wealth that prevents you from walking the sacred path of the kingdom of God. What could it possibly be? What could it be? One commentator says, being rich has all these accompanying socioeconomic ties and relationships. It demands a lot from you. It demands certain kinds of allegiance, certain kinds of uh, being beholden to people or causes or systems. That way of ordering relationships, says Jesus, is in contrast with the way that relationships are to be ordered in the kingdom of God. And if you get hung up on kingdom language, that's okay. Think of realm or reign or way of being. Another commentator elaborates on that and says, Jesus is asking the man to divest of all his wealth so that he would deprive himself of the role of benefactor. That would have been expected of a wealthy person at that time, to be a benefactor to others. Now, why would Jesus want someone not to be a benefactor? That would seem to be a good thing, a charitable thing. Wouldn't we want to support that? It always goes back to the relationships. And for Jesus, it always goes back to power. And how does power infiltrate and define the relationships of the day? And Jesus is pointing out that when you're a benefactor, you're still what? In charge. We might call it the underbelly of philanthropy in our day and age. Because what does philanthropy do? Of course, all the kinds of good things. We can all name our charitable causes. But it gives disproportionate control over society and society's agenda to those who have. You could say... It's profoundly anti-democratic, concentrates the power in the hands of the few, and Jesus isn't interested in it. He says the kingdom of heaven is defined by a different set of relationships, unlike the dominant culture, which handles power this way, top to bottom. Jesus stretches things out and describes a reality marked by mutuality by connectedness, by trust and divine provision, natural provision that there's enough to go around and enough to be shared, which stands in direct contrast to the dominant norms of Jesus' day, and you could probably say our day, which is about separateness, which is about maintaining control, which is about myths of scarcity that largely spawn violence, literal violence or institutional violence. 
And Jesus holds those up against one another. So he is merely describing reality when he says, if you're still loyal or you're still captive to one system, to one way of being and relating to others around you, by definition, you can't be a part of this because this is defined by an entirely different way of relating to one another. The two can't coexist. And the tragedy of the story is the the one who confronts Jesus ultimately chooses to stay captive to his kingdom and is therefore unable to enter God's kingdom. That's the kingdom I found myself in when I was looped around by that man last week. And it's a kingdom we visit all the time. We have to live and move through it. It's the kingdom where many of the students lived who surrounded O'Neill Batchelor. Batchelor, who was a janitor, or is a janitor at Georgetown University. When he began, he was about the same age as many of the students around him, this immigrant from Jamaica who made his living cleaning the campus there. And even though he was the same age as a lot of the students around him, he said the distance couldn't have been greater. He described it as like an ice between them. Until one day, about 10 years after he started, a student, a business student from India named Fabim Bellamy broke the ice, so to speak. Nodded at him one night and the next night said hello and pretty soon they got to talking. And they built this lovely relationship. They shared stories of being immigrants. Bellamy was from India and as I mentioned, Bachelor was from Jamaica. They started to talk about politics and business and music and all kinds of things that people talk about. They hit it off so much that Bellamy visited O'Neill's church, the bachelor's church. He met his six-year-old son. And then he started to notice something else. He said, once you see, you can't unsee. So all these previously hidden figures that make Georgetown run came to light for him and he became interested in them and in their stories and did a lot to bring light to their stories. There were people like, well, like the woman who vacuumed the library, whose name was Manuna Taki. She was from Ghana. And in her spare moments, she would study for her citizenship test. There was the cook in the dining hall, Jose Manzanares, who witnessed family members killed in his native El Salvador, much like Our own Jesus Posada, whose family members have been killed in El Salvador, cleans our building. There was the dining hall cashier, Umberto Suri Ripai, who hadn't seen his family in South Sudan for 45 years. Then there was the crossing guard, Anthony Tracy Smith, who always smiled, they said, even when others didn't smile back. You know how Smith became a crossing guard? His father was killed crossing a street. And he dedicated his life to protecting pedestrians by becoming a crossing guard. Now that's a call of Christian vocation. Through his storytelling, Bellamy did a lot to dismantle that distance between us or bridge that distance that we experience, just like Jesus did time and time again. 
Now, Jesus' words are cutting. They cut right through our reality, right through our relationships, sometimes right through our heart, just like Hebrews said. They're meant to. Sharper than any two-edged sword, the word of God pierces until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. Hebrews says the word of God is also living and active. That's the good news. That the word is still at work in your life and in the world and seeking to be at work among us. We might feel as though it's not. We couldn't dare approach what Jesus asks us to do, be the kind of people God wants us to be. But that's not what Hebrews says, Hebrews who holds to that living word. Hebrews says, no, approach the throne. The throne of what? Not the seat of judgment, not the seat of condemnation, but the throne of grace. Hebrews says you can come to the seat of grace, not because of who you are or how well you've done, or how good you are, but because of who Christ is and who Christ has been and who Christ continues to be. Christ who passed through the heavens on our behalf, who is a high priest of a new sort and who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Remember in the gospel stories, Jesus was tested and tempted just like we are. I don't know about you, but I'm very glad Christ can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Don't blow past that line. Linger in it for a while. Lay in it if you need to. Lie in it. It will hold you. It's good news. The the tragic and, and, and tragically ironic piece of reality about religion is that it often positions itself as where you come once you've overcome your weaknesses. Or certainly it's not the place you show up and reveal them to anybody, heaven forbid, when the reality is that's the whole reason any of us are here. And in Christianity, we cling to this notion that we call the incarnation, simply means the full presence of God in Jesus, precisely because it makes Jesus, makes God identifiable, recognizable, and approachable. Because Jesus understands what it's like to be us. So Hebrews says, approach. And don't tiptoe as if you're nervous about whether or not you belong. Careen into God. That's what God's waiting for. All you have to do is acknowledge those places of need. Acknowledge them and turn them over. Lift them up. Give them over to Christ to God, to spirit, to the universe. We're in, I don't care what word you use. Turn them over and then watch what comes back when you turn over that need. A wedding is a glorious thing to behold, not because it's the highest form of love or the only form of love, but it is in our society the one that's ritually celebrated probably the most, the highest symbolism And it can be an amazing thing to watch. I won't get into the personalities of the two that I I saw married last week or their lives, but I will say with high confidence that they need each other. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of neediness, 
but the kind of need that speaks to the way one completes the other, with all due respect to Jerry Maguire. <laughs> that there is a wholeness found in their coming together, the kind of coming together that says, oh, it's better when you're in the room. You could say that they were an answer to each other's prayers, literally. Now, I know not everybody's prayers in that area get answered, but maybe that's why it was uh, such a powerful union to watch. It was a Jewish wedding. It was my first Jewish wedding. I'm a little embarrassed to say. But as someone who performs weddings in another tradition, I was, it was sort of a wedding nerd there. I was taking, you know, sort of observing the rituals and unpacking what they do and what it might mean. And, oh, it was just rich. And every, you, we could go on, I could go on all day, as you know. <laughs> you busy? And, but from the time they processed in one before the other and they stood at the front and they circled each other, honoring the other. They stood beneath the hoop of the spiritual place of safety with open walls so the loving community could surround them. And then there's that special moment at the end where they break the glass and everybody shouts, kept my son up two hours past his bedtime just to see that whispering ever so softly in my ear during the service. When are they going to break the glass, Dad? <laughs> in the front row. But it wasn't that part that was the most moving to me. It was this part near the beginning. There was a musical family. And so he sang this chant, and the words are simply, there's enough room for us all. There's enough joy for us all. There's enough room for us all. That's not a sappy, sentimental statement that you see in weddings. That is a powerful statement. There is enough for us all. We don't have to grab it. We don't have to take it. We don't have to fight over it. We don't have to price it so high that very few people can access it. There's enough for all of us. That's a powerful statement. It's a bold statement because it says what is most true and by definition, therefore, what is false. It's a defiant statement because it says uh, in so many ways what we've been taught is not so, that there is another way to be in this world. It's a promising statement, not just because it's a hopeful statement, but because it's a public commitment as to how one will order their life and what their relationships will look like, which is always what it's about. There is no more countercultural, subversive statement that turns everything up down, upside down than one that says of all the available options about how to order our life in this world, of all the available options, some which are funded with huge advertising campaigns, some which are funded with super PAC type money, of all the available options, how we will order our life, we will choose love. We will choose love. And it hit me in that moment, and it hits me looking back that the real wedding crasher at that union, as so we sang that song and felt something flowing among us and in us and between us, the real wedding crasher was the spirit of the living God. Amen.
You may be seated. I want to highlight just a couple of announcements in the bulletin and encourage you to read about what is coming up in the life of the church. Uh, first, immediately following worship today, we have the pleasure of uh, Khadija Hanzia being here. I have the pleasure of serving with her on the Marin Interfaith Council Board. She is going to be talking about um, some of her recent visits to refugee camps and what she learned, what she saw. Um, so she'll be in Finley Hall. I invite you to be with Khadija if you're interested in hearing more from her. In addition, as you leave worship, you'll see on the tables right out there in the narthex, signups for our fall small group dinners. This is always a, an enjoyable time in our congregation when our Congregational Life Commission hosts these. Um, no, no topic for the evening, just a chance to come and get to know fellow congregants better. All kinds of dinners to choose from, so I invite you to visit the table as you leave. Uh, next week, following worship, we are having a new member orientation. If uh, you are new to Westminster, perhaps even have been coming for a while and are interested in learning more about membership, you're invited to join us for that after worship next week. And finally, one announcement that's not in the bulletin, you know, as we just um, and had another hurricane this past week, we are reminded of all of the cleanup that happens after these natural disasters, not even after these two most recent hurricanes, but um, natural disasters that happened several years ago where rebuilding is still happening. Um, so Rob is working with a team at First Presbyterian San Rafael um, to actually uh, go on a trip to one of these areas that has been hit by a natural disaster through the Presbyterian Disaster Assistance. It'll likely be in March or April next year, but if that's something that's interesting to you, um, you're welcome to see Rob, we don't have a lot of details right now, but just know that that is coming and we're looking for people who would be interested in something like that. So with that, I would like to invite forward a Randy Heiser and Fred Montgomery. Oh, wait, I, there's a question or an announcement. Yes, please. Thank you. That's Bill McLeod, chair of our stewardship team. Thank you for all the work you all are doing. Okay, now I'm going to invite forward Randy and Fred, who are newest elder and deacon, as well as our clerk of session, Susan Burkout. I have no battery. Uh-oh. So you're, you're on reference yeah, at the moment. It's not going to last. <laughs> the need to fill out two terms, one for the Board of Deacons, one for the Board of Elders for this year. And we have two qualified candidates before you. 
Um, and so I'm going to call hopefully the shortest congregational meeting in history to order right now. I'm going to declare that we have a quorum. This is how we get one. Do it in the middle of a service. And uh, our only, uh, I'm going to count our, also our opening worship as the opening prayer and declare now that when we pray over them, asking the Spirit's guidance, that will be our closing prayer for the meeting. Now, Presbyterian polity, which I hold in my hand, says that we must entertain nominations from the floor, even though we have these two capable, talented, <laughs> wonderful men who've agreed to serve. We should have brought you up after this moment. I apologize. So are there any nominations from the floor to unseat these willing people? <laughs> Hearing none? <laughs> you were going to call the question, good man. <laughs> No, I, I, I will pause for a second and say we are also in our nomination season for next year. So if you or someone around you should be serving the leadership of this church, think about that possibility. We still have openings. But hearing no further nominations from the floor, I So hear these words of scripture. There are varieties of gifts, but it is the same spirit who gives them. There are different ways of serving God, but it is the same Lord who is served. God works through each person in a unique way, but it is God's purpose that is accomplished. To each is given a gift of the spirit to be used for the common good. And we are so grateful that Randy and Fred have responded to the call to serve here at Westminster as elder and deacon. Speaking for the people of the church, I bring Randy Hauser to be ordained and installed as an elder, and I bring Fred Montgomery to be ordained and installed as a deacon. I'm going to use this so you can hear me, and you, folk, you guys can turn and face somewhat me if you'd like, or you can just uh, listen. These are the ordination and installation questions. Uh, called uh, to us from our Constitution. So I'll ask you them in turn. This is for, these are for both of you. Do you trust in Jesus Christ, your Savior? Acknowledge him Lord of all and head of the church, and through him believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do you? Do you accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be by the Holy Spirit the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ in the church universal in God's word to you, do you? Do you sincerely believe and adopt the essential tenets of the Reformed faith as expressed in the confessions of our church as authentic and reliable expositions of what scripture leads us to believe and do? And will you be instructed and led by those confessions as you lead the people of God, do you and will you? Will you fulfill your ministry in obedience to Jesus Christ under the authority of Scripture and be continually guided by our confessions? Will you? Will you be governed by our church's polity and will you abide by its discipline? Will you be a friend among your colleagues in ministry, working with them, subject to the ordering of God's word and spirit? Will you? Do you... Oh, I skipped one. Will you, in your own life, Seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, love your neighbors, and work for the reconciliation of the world. Do you promise to further the peace, unity, and purity of the church? Do you? 
Will you pray for and seek to serve the people with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love, will you? And this is for you, Randy. Will you be a faithful ruling elder watching over the people, providing for their worship, nurture, and service? Will you share in government and discipline, serving in councils of the church, and in your ministry, will you try to show the love and justice of Jesus Christ? And for you, Fred, will you be a faithful deacon, teaching charity, urging concern, and directing the people's help to the friendless and those in need? And in your ministry, will you try to show the love and justice of Jesus Christ? Will you? it back over to our clerk. Do we, members of the church, accept Randy and Fred, chosen by God through the voice of this congregation, to lead us in the way of Jesus Christ? Do we agree to encourage and respect their decisions as part of the elected leadership of the church, and to follow as they guide us, serving Jesus Christ, who alone is head of the church? We do. And now I would like to invite any of you who have been previously ordained as an elder or deacon or pastor to come forward. We're going to gently lay our hands on Fred and Randy. And if you can't reach them, simply place your hand on the shoulder of someone in front of you. We'll make a, a chain. Look at all of the... We do this as our way of showing our support and guidance and love. So let us pray. Eternal God, we thank you for those in all ages who have been called to tend and to care for your church. Today, we thank you especially for Randy and Fred, whom you have called to serve in this household of faith and in the world, which you have entrusted to our care and keeping. Send your Holy Spirit on them that they may serve among us with joy and faithfulness. Guide, inspire, empower them that by their service you may be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And thank you to all who serve our church in so many ways. I invite you now as you are comfortable to stand for our closing hymn, number 36. 